back in the day, you know when somebody begins a sentence like that, they're old. But really, back in the day, when I was a physical therapist, that was a long time ago, we had a process that we would go through called testing and treatment, right? And the reason that was the case is because very often patients would come to us with a very vague description like, my knee hurts, right? Carrie, you've had that happen before, right? My knee hurts. We would think that we could look at the prescription and find a little clear definition as to what be go, might be going on. But sure enough, we look at the diagnosis and it says, right knee pain. Well, that helps, right? <laughs> at least we know what leg it is. And so we begin to then ask a series of questions to help us define what might be the problem so we could be most effective in our treatment. When did this happen? What were you doing when it happened? Did you have any clicking or popping? Was there any swelling? These kinds of things give us additional information to more clearly define what exactly may be the problem. And then we would go through a, a physical exam where we would try to, to provoke some of those symptoms, which is why they call us physical terrorists sometimes. <laughs> but we want to try to find out exactly what's going on in order to most effectively treat that problem. Well, this morning, I believe there's a similar process going on in the lives of Joseph's brothers. You see, the, the scene now shifts from, from Joseph's efforts to save a nation from a family, famine to now saving a family from unforgiveness. Joseph will be the tool that God uses to examine the hearts of his brothers and ultimately to test to see where their convictions and commitments lie. And from this, he will prescribe a course of treatment which will ultimately bring healing to their relationships. I want us to look at that together. So if you're not already there, turn to Genesis chapter 42. Like most of our story of Joseph, what we read together is very familiar to us all. And so instead of reading this verse by verse, I want to just recall the story with you. And we're going to look at some of the key passages in our story that, that's our, that are important. So we'll do that together. Again, to kind of put this into perspective, let me just remind you where we left off last week. We learned that there was a, a famine that was severe, and its impact was being felt across the globe, really, at least in that part of the world. As we talked about, Joseph originally thought that God had commissioned him to provide for a famine that was coming in the nation of Egypt. And then there was this abundance that was more than anybody ever expected. And as we learned, that abundance occurred because they would be feeding more than they ever anticipated. Because much of the then known world would be coming to Egypt to buy food, including, as we said last week, Jacob and his family. Verse 1 tells us that this family, this family that made their living off of the land, was standing along with each other and hungry, nothing to eat. Verse 1 tells us that Jacob looks at his sons and he says, Why are you staring at one another? <laughs> Behold, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy us some food so we don't die. Listen to the compassion in those words, right? He then sent his sons away, but kept Benjamin back home saying, I won't let him go because I'm afraid... He might be harmed along the way. The implication being, I don't care what happens to you. So already we're in verse 1 and we can tell that there is not a lot that has changed in the life of Jacob and his dysfunctional family. The father is still playing favorites. 
And the sons are still passive, just like their dad, all standing around, staring at each other, waiting for somebody else to make the first move. Not only is Jacob playing favorites, but I believe he is growing in his bitterness. And we'll begin to see that happen more clearly as the passage goes on. I don't think his heart's changed. In fact, I think it may have even grown harder with time. And so... The ten brothers do what they need to do, and they leave for Egypt. Now, this is about a week's long journey, and so you can imagine that they were probably hungry before they left, which is their motivation to begin with. Then they make this week-long journey across a very dry desert to enter into the land of Egypt. And so they probably get to Egypt in a pretty desperate situation. They're directed to the person who is in charge of distributing food to foreigners, and that just so happens to be our friend Joseph. The Scripture tells us that they do not recognize him, and we would expect this to be the case. Because remember, the last time they saw him, Joseph was 17 years old. He was just a teenager. And by this time, he's in his early 30s. The other thing that we've learned is that unlike the Hebrews who had Uh, beards and and those sorts of things as a nomadic people this was a clean-shaven man who wore the garments of egyptian authority and all the jewelry that went with that and not only that we learn when we read our passage that he is speaking to them in an egyptian language that they cannot understand that is then being interpreted to them in hebrew so there's no reason that his brothers would have picked up on the fact that this is actually their brother Now, Joseph, on the other hand, has the collective evidence of all ten brothers. And so the Scripture tells us is that when he sees them, he immediately knows who they are. Uh, The Scripture then says that in knowing that, Joseph disguises himself. And it says that he does so by using harsh words as he questions them regarding the place from which they've traveled. Now, I believe that what Joseph is doing is he's keeping a distance. He's doing this on purpose in order to to test their heart, to see where his brothers are in their relationship with God. He asked them, where have you come from? Now, some look at this encounter with with Joseph and his brothers, and, and they suggest that Joseph is acting out of anger, that he uses harsh words, that he throws them in jail, and then in some ways he even kind of frames them Because he's seeking revenge. And maybe there was a little twinge in that humanity within Joseph when he saw his brothers that he thought, I'll put you in your place. But as I look at the whole of this account, beginning and and now and what we see yet coming, I do not believe that Joseph is working or acting out of a heart of anger or revenge. I believe that Joseph has really had a significant heart change he's been through some serious suffering we would not deny that we've walked through his life up to this point and we know that through those experiences joseph has done some serious business with god in fact everything up to this point as we have seen would lead us to a very clear conclusion that joseph is a humble man and he would not be one to use this position of authority to diminish or demean or belittle someone else even his own brothers we've already seen how joseph has repeatedly learned to trust in the lord and so there would be no clue or indication that he would all of a sudden begin to take things 
into his own hands. Instead, it seems that Joseph has witnessed enough times now the miraculous hand of God, and I think very likely this would be no exception. And so instead of a hateful heart that is seeking revenge, I believe what we will see evidence of is a softened heart which is seeking forgiveness. Now, there's no doubt that he uses harsh words and the tactics may seem odd to us, but as we will notice, his emotions remain very tender towards his brothers. Joseph, I believe, is hopeful that he would see reconciliation, but he knows that that's only possible if God has changed their heart as well. And so now it's time for the test to see if, in fact, that is the case. He begins by making a very strong and fear-inducing accusation. He says, specifically, you are the spies, and you've come to look at our land and identify the undefended parts of this land. This would immediately put the brothers on their heels. They're tired from their journey. Their stomachs are empty, and they don't have time or energy to create a plot of deception. Joseph's harsh words force an honest answer. They have no other choice. So they say to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are sons of one man. We are being honest. We promise. We are not spies. You can just hear the the desperation in their voice as they are responding to the accusations being made by Joseph. This wasn't time to to play games. In fact, they just try to even logically explain it wouldn't make sense for us to send our entire family here to be spies and, and risk our lives. That that doesn't happen. They humbly call themselves servants. And they address Joseph as Lord, putting themselves under his submission and authority. But Joseph continues to press them. No, Joseph says, I still think you're spies. And we Egyptians are not very fond of Hebrew spies. Okay, he didn't say that last part, but that's the idea that they would be getting as brothers, okay? They realize that they're in a compromised place. And there is somebody that's in front of them who has the authority to take their life. And there's nothing that they can do about it. So in an effort to give credibility, they give more details, they tell them more, he tells them more specifics about this family. The brothers say to Joseph, there are 12 brothers in all, all the sons of one man. The youngest is back with our father, and the other is no more. Ouch. That one had to sting. His brothers not only forgot about Joseph, they considered him dead. And there he was, staring at him in the face. Yet Joseph keeps his composure, and he continues to press. Because I'm not buying it. I still think you're spies. Okay? At this point in time, Joseph's brothers are sweating. They're backed into a corner, and there is no good way out of this situation. But as it turns out, Joseph is just now beginning to turn up the heat. He will force his brothers to be put in a situation where they have to do business with their heart before God. And so he tells them, all of you are going to jail. (laughs) 
And I'm going to let you sit there and think about this for a little bit. And when I'm done, I'm going to ask one of you to go and get your brother who you say is left in Canaan and bring him back. And then I'll know you're telling the truth. So they sit there, says, for three days. Now, just think about what might have been going through their mind during those three days. They're in a difficult place because they know good and well. When they go back to to home and they explain the situation to their dad, their dad is not going to let Benjamin come back. I mean, there is no possible way that's going to happen. But yet, all the brothers except the one being released is going to be left in jail and they can't let those guys die. So they're talking to each other and they're getting frustrated in their situation. There's no good way out. This isn't fair. (laughs) They're being punished for a crime they didn't commit. They're crying for mercy and nobody's listening. Doesn't this sound familiar? And maybe, just maybe, this is where their conscience begins to come awake. Because now they're getting a taste of the medicine they once gave to their brother, Joseph. And perhaps for the first time, they're feeling his pain. After three days, Joseph calls his brothers out, and he says to them in verse 18, look at that. It says, Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. How unusual for an Egyptian ruler to speak to them in the name of their own God. In fact, the word he uses for God here is Elohim, the one true God, the ruler of all. So on the grounds of their common faith, Joseph then changes the initial instructions that he gave them. He says, I tell you what, I'm going to keep one of you instead of all of you and let the others go. But my request is the same, that you bring your brother back so that I know that you are telling the truth. In the fear of the Lord, he says, I'm going to do what's right. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to do the same. The convicting implication is this. Do you fear God enough to do what is right in his eyes? Do you value the life of your brother? More than personal gain. I believe after the time they spent in jail, the situation they found themselves in, and the conscience that began to come awake, when Joseph said these words to his brothers, it went straight to their heart. Look at verse 21. It says, Then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother, Joseph, because we saw the distress of his soul when we when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, his distress has come upon us. This is new information. We have not had this information. We didn't know this back when they threw him in the pit. But apparently their conscience is now awake because they're remembering exactly what happened on that day. Reuben, I believe in selfish cowardice, is my opinion, says, I told you so, essentially. (laughs) I told you not to do that. Now, I don't think that he's all pure. I think his motives were selfish at best. And if he really cared about his brother, he wouldn't have walked away. But more important is the fact that in this scene, we now get a chance to see the true heart 
and character of Joseph. Upon hearing this confession from his brothers, the scripture tells us that Joseph turned away and he wept. He wept. He wasn't seeking revenge. He was hoping and praying for forgiveness. And what just happened when he heard this confession of his brothers was a beautiful step in the direction of reconciliation. And he couldn't hold back the tears. I'm telling you, Joseph's heart has changed. He has allowed God to destroy the bitterness and make room for forgiveness in his heart. And this is the moment he's been waiting for. But only ten brothers are there. And Joseph remembered his dream. And in his dream, there were eleven brothers, including his dad. So Joseph holds Simeon back, and he tells the other brothers to go and bring their son, their other brother, left at home, back with them. And when he does, unbeknownst to his brothers, he, he takes that silver that they used to buy food and puts that amount of silver in each one's sack and sends them on their way. In doing so, here's what Joseph just accomplished. He has created a moral dilemma that will test their character and force them to do business of their own with God. Once they discover that the, the silver is in their sack, they must decide whether to abandon Simeon like they did their brother Joseph, indicating that nothing has changed and there is no place for reconciliation. Or they can do business with God, putting the value of someone else's life as more important than their own, choosing instead to return and rescue their brother, putting their own lives at stake because they would appear as criminals having received this money in their sacks. We get the sense of what is happening in their hearts when, when one of them discovers the money that's been placed in their sack. It says in verse 28, if you'll look at that, it says, Their hearts sank, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, Listen to this, What is this that God has done to us? This is so important because not only have they recognized their sin as they confessed in the presence of Joseph, but they've also identified the one to whom they ultimately must give an account. They didn't blame each other. They didn't blame their dad. They didn't even blame this Egyptian ruler who put them in this place to begin with. Instead, they confessed that what they did to Joseph was wrong. And now they must give an account to God for their sin. This is a huge breakthrough. But they're not done yet because there's still another obstacle yet to overcome, and that's their dad. When they return home, they nervously explain to him the events, and they kind of gloss over some of the more important details like their life is at stake on this one. <laughs> Instead, what they do is they explain that, that the ruler told them to bring their brother back so that they could prove that they were honest men and then be allowed to trade freely in the land. That's not exactly what he said, but it sure would help them accomplish their goal. But after having explained this situation, they each pull down their sacks and find that not just one sack was filled with silver, but every single one of them was filled with silver. <laughs> now that little harmless story that they told, not holding up anymore. 
Every one of them has an equal understanding of the severity of the situation that they are in. Panic sets in. And Jacob very quickly says, you will not take Benjamin back to Egypt. It won't happen. He blames his sons for the pain that they have caused him. And he never once took responsibility for his own contribution to the dysfunction in that family. He doesn't trust his sons. At this point in time, he doesn't trust God. And he's unwilling to relinquish control. (laughs) Once again, foolish Reuben, I believe, steps in and and does something that doesn't make any sense at all. He agrees to take on vision. He says, hey, listen, it'll be my responsibility. And as collateral, I'll give you my two sons. Now, does that make sense to you? For Jacob to say, okay, I'll take that. So if something bad happens to Benjamin, I'll just kill my two grandsons. No, it makes no sense at all. So the scene ends with the lot still hanging in the balance. Joseph is waiting in Egypt, and he's ready to forgive. His heart has been softened. and He's prepared for reconciliation. His brothers are turning to God, and I believe their conscience is fully Awake. It appears that their hearts are being changed, but the bitterness of their dad now stands in the way. So now they're the ones who are in a deep hole. And we're going to have to wait a couple of weeks to figure out how they get out of this one. But that's okay, because like the brothers while they were in prison had plenty of time to think, I think it would be good for us to take a little time to do the same. I think it's good for us to do some business with God on our own. I believe there are some biblically prescribed treatments in the passage that we looked at this morning. And we need to listen closely if we seek desire, healing of our hearts and our lives as well. Here's the first one. It is this. Always prepare your heart so that you are ready to forgive. Always prepare your heart so that you are ready to forgive. You see, Joseph may have anticipated the fulfillment of that dream that God had given him, but he had no idea when or how that would happen. If he doesn't allow God to to work on his heart, to, to soften his heart and prepare him for that moment whenever that may be, his anger and bitterness would have inevitably prohibited him from having any chance of reconciliation with his family. Instead, we see that Joseph allowed God to help him forgive his brothers long before the opportunity to do so ever took place. We saw some of that last week, didn't we? When we looked at the names that he gave his own two sons. And in those names, we saw that he basically proclaimed and communicated, confessed in those names that I refuse to hold on to the bitterness in the hope of God's future provision. His heart was prepared to forgive well before the opportunity ever presented itself for him to do so. So what about you? As you look at those broken and hurting relationships in your life, have you allowed God to do that same softening work in your heart? Or do you remain hardened by bitterness and anger that you refuse to release? It's one of the two. 
The Bible calls it a root of bitterness. I, I think that's a great word picture, right? Because if you think about it, that, that root of bitterness, if allowed to grow, entangles your heart and it's almost impossible to get out of. Just think about a little tree sapling that you might plant in the ground. And before that has a chance to establish its roots, you can go right over to that thing, pull it up. It's not a big deal. But you let that thing grow and it becomes a tree, it's not coming out of the ground very easy. And when it does, there'll be a whole lot of destruction that goes along with it. Let no root of bitterness cause you trouble, the Bible says. Allow God to soften your heart so that you are always prepared to forgive. And I understand that forgiveness is a two-way street, but the only part you can control is what is in your heart. Let God give you peace by allowing Him to bring you to a place of forgiveness, whether the opportunity ever presents itself or not. In our passage, I see bitterness is the barrier that prevents reconciliation from those who have been wronged. In this case, Joseph. But unrepentance is the barrier to reconciliation for those who are guilty. In this case, Joseph's brothers. This brings us to another biblical prescription that says that confession is the necessary prerequisite for healing. In fact, that's exactly what James chapter 5, verse 16 promises. It says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. You see, until Joseph's brothers admitted their guilt and sin, there was no possibility of lasting reconciliation in this family. None. It was not possible. And remember, their confession was not based on the fear of man. Their hearts sank and they trembled. Because they understood that their sin against Joseph was ultimately an offense to the living God. He was the one in whom they would ultimately give an account. How often we too find ourselves in a similar situation where we let unconfessed sin burden our heart. Like Joseph's brothers, we can try to hide it. We can cover it up. But eventually, we've got to deal with it. We've got to address it. No matter what the sin issue might be, the one who is ultimately the object of our offense is God. Confession flows from a heart of repentance, and and that's where healing begins. If we confess our sins, the Bible tells us, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confess your sins so that you may be healed. Let God deal with your past so that you can find hope in the future. Because here's the deal. Until you trust God with your future, you will be imprisoned by your past. But as we see from our passage this morning, it does not have to be that way. You do have a choice. Sometimes we get in those situations and we think, I don't have a choice. That's not true. You have a choice. When you learn to trust in the Lord, old things are gone, new things have come. That's a promise, a promise from God. You're no longer imprisoned by your past. Your life is made new. But you've got to decide that that's what you want. You see, Joseph's brothers had to break the pattern of sin. They couldn't continue doing the same things over and over again, expecting a different result. 
they had to confront the reality that they were continuing the legacy of passive men and deceitfulness in their lives. Maybe to the point that they even deceived themselves, convincing themselves that they didn't have to deal with sin because they thought they could just carry on with life as normal, uh, just pretending that nothing ever happened. And we do that too, don't we? We convince ourselves to, to just start making better choices without ever having really dealt with the sinful past that has occurred. And as a result, we find ourselves falling into those same traps over and over again. But it doesn't have to be that way. We see in our passage that Joseph trusted in the Lord and he was able to break through the barrier of bitterness. We see that his brothers admitted their guilt and and sin and they were able to overcome. And we'll see this happen as we continue on, this this pattern of passivity and, and deceitfulness. And for you and I, when we give our lives to Christ, that's when old things are gone and new things come. For those who put their trust in Christ, they are a new creation, freed from the prison of their past so that they can walk in the newness of life, forgiving one another because they've been forgiven in Christ, confessing their sins and praying for one another so that they may be healed, trusting in God who brings life where once there was death because he makes all things new. As we were praying together this morning as a staff for our time, we were just reminded that even in God's creative design of the seasons, we hear this message, don't we? We look at the death that happens in winter and spring rolls around and stuff starts blooming and things are turning green. And this week when you go around and you see that happening in our city where you live, I want you to be reminded God makes all things new. And what he does in creation, he does in your heart when you put your trust in him. He makes all things new new trust in him next week is an important sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of jesus christ who makes all things new and i would encourage you to uh, take some time to invite somebody we don't have a big promotional we don't have fancy programs going on all we've got is your invitation but next week we're going to be able to share the good news of life in christ and i'd encourage you to bring somebody with you to hear that message let me close our time in prayer Father, thank you for that promise that you make all things new. Father, protect us from ourselves when we try to hide or convince ourselves that we don't need to deal with things in our life that prevent us from experiencing the fullness of the relationship that you desire to have with us. May we have a heart that is ready to forgive. May we be quick to confess our sins and be eager to accept the forgiveness that we have through faith and trust in you. Thanks again for the example of Joseph. (laughs) What a tender heart who was ready to forgive and I believe had forgiven long before the opportunity ever presented itself. May we be that kind of a person. Father, thank you so much for the time together, for the life that we have in you and the love that we have for one another because of that. May we live in that truth this week. And we pray this in your blessed name. Amen.